Before we get into today's podcast, Nineworks is saddened by events happening in Ukraine currently. Right now, our work feels hollow, knowing just some of the atrocities many innocent people in the same continent as us are having to face. We've wanted to do something to help those people in crisis while uniting the enthusiast community, which is why we've launched our Drive Half, Give Half campaign. The idea is that before you head out on a drive with friends or on a saunter down to your local cars and coffee, you'll invariably want to fill up the tank in your car. We're asking you to fill up half of your tank and donate the value of the other half to help those in need. You can make your donation at justgiving.com slash fundraising slash nineworks. It goes without saying 100% of the donations will go to charity, which is the British Red Cross's Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal. Coming up on Nineworks Radio, magazines, what have they meant to us and what is their future? And dry ice blasting, what's it all about? Nineworks Radio is your dedicated Porsche and car podcast, taking you closer than ever to the world's finest sports cars and the culture and history behind them. Nineworks Radio is brought to you by nineworks.co.uk, the innovative online platform for Porsche enthusiasts. Nineworks Radio is presented by Porsche journalist Lee Sibley and 993 owner and engineer Andy Brooks with special input from friends and experts around the industry, as well as you, our valued listeners. Enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, good day, good evening, wherever you are listening. Welcome to Nineworks Radio. and Welcome along, Andy, Neil and Max. Hello, good evening. evening. Yes, it's a crew show this evening. Uh, Andy and I, as I say, joined by uh, Neil and Max to give their views on a subject, I think fairly close to certainly half the group's heart today but certainly something that otherwise will affect us all and that's magazines mags 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 dirty mags dirty mags i mean that that did it did come up in the brainstorming section (laughs) (laughs) pre-show that goes about saying but we shall stay away from top shelf and just go purely my uh, speciality (laughs) what what you do what you do to kill your nervous disposition in your own time (laughs) is entirely up to you all right Um, right. we'll we'll stick on the the halfway up the the shelves then let's stick with that yeah so still in the special interest section though eh? (laughs) very very much so very much so we will cover everything from um the the height of the magazines to kind of where they are now uh, to our opinion of them kind of everyone in between i would like to start gents by asking quite a big question to start do you think uh, and we'll ask everybody individually uh, do you think magazines and this is with particular reference to automotive magazines are dead me definitely not no i think me definitely not i think they've evolved very cleverly um yeah i agree absolutely not there was definitely a perceived threat yeah um and i think there have been quite big changes in circulation um, and you'll probably be able to tell us Lee about the financials that have gone with that, that have changed car mags a bit. But if anything, I think now they're in a bit of a renaissance. Excellent. It's um, it's interesting that you guys have all kind of said that like, yeah, kind of unequivocally magazines aren't dead. They might be, and we need to ad- address it. I think it's right in case listeners going, well, hang on a minute. We've got, you know, on our, our four strong panel here, we've got a magazine editor and two magazine columnists. So, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> um, but I think that's kind of 
an indication of perhaps you know where our where our hearts lie in it particularly in regards to like the columnist you know you you, you certainly don't do that for any form of payment um you, you do it for the love so you, you you would only do something when you view it as worthwhile anyway i would assume absolutely yeah i think you only have to look at the trends now as well because um books haven't gone away um and vinyl records are making a comeback now as well so what's to say that magazines are ever going to go away there's no there's no uh, real reason why they ever should so e- even with the changing generations and the changing genre um i think even younger people are starting to pick up magazines and get into magazines because i think they realize that they spend so much time on the screen anyways it's actually good just to sit down and read a magazine so mm. yeah i can't see them going anywhere soon my consumption has gone down a lot i mean when i was uh, mm. in my teens and early 20s when you know the internet wasn't around then um i'd buy <laughs> at least one magazine a week mm. Um, so it would normally be like a Saturday morning, quick nip into WH Smiths to get your magazine for the weekend. To, are, we, are we still on top shelf? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. We're, we're talking automotive here. Excellent. Just leave, okay. leave, 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 leave the top shelf behind. <laughs> what, I never um, used to buy those. I used to steal them. Sorry, <laughs> mum. <laughs> what? Um, I'd, I'd be keen to know what magazines you guys read you know kind of going through the years really so Andy when you popped into town into into Smith's for your mag a week what was it invariably well when I was when in my teens it was the street machine and custom car magazines you know quite topical from last week's yes um uh, interview with Andy Saunders um and then I'd also be into kit car magazines I really wanted to know how cars worked and how to put them together so yeah those were my ones from my teens so I don't know what the other guys, you know, what you read when you were in your Mine was more generalised. Yeah, mine was more generalised. Maybe, was it Car Express? Car Express? Yeah, it's sort of yeah. weekly. Yeah, yeah, mine was more of a weekly one to get up to speed with what the new cars were, what was coming out, when, and um, specs and numbers on each car. Yeah. Which I, which I think the, probably the reason why you don't do that so much now is probably YouTube because, I mean, you get it all on YouTube. I yeah. mean, look, look when the new Ferrari dropped um, last week. I mean, you had your choice of probably 12 to 15 journos doing the video. So, I mean, take your pick. So that was the stuff you would have been re- reading in a weekly magazine. So I yeah. think they're maybe the ones that's going to suffer. But yeah, they were the ones for me, just like a generalized one. And then I've got a little bit more niche as I got older. I still don't think that you get um, the sort of a full road test in a YouTube video, you know, you get different levels of analysis and, you know, different levels of of objective and subjective views in a YouTube video, but you don't get, I don't think from anybody uh, like an auto car style road test. So I think there's still, you know, my, my dad was a subscriber to motorsport magazine. So I, I read motorsport and classic and sports car. We got quite a lot. And then in, I think when I was 10, I got a subscription to Motor Magazine, which is a weekly. Mm, so that yeah. was the start of my mm. magazine obsession, really. And, you know, hoovering up all of the information. That's where all the card nerds, the car nerd stuff from, car nerd stuff comes from, was mm. getting Motor Magazine, um, which became Autocar and Motor and then Autocar. You know, he must have got that for about 15 years every week. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's the, you know, that's why magazines are so important to me because that's the, you know, that's the bedrock of my entire car knowledge is out of magazines. You know, and half of my opinions as well, um, you know, I've taken from mm. car magazines. That's why they're so important to me. Mm. I want to have a guess at what Lee's was, the, his teenage magazine. 
and I reckon it's max power. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say close, but um, that that would be swearing actually, because I was <laughs> I was on the other side of uh, the Great Divide, and it was it was either Max Power or Fast Car, and I was oh you're was, a bit more highbrow then. I was definitely fast. Well, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, thank you very much. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, well, it was it was Fast Car for me, uh, but also Redline Magazine as well, which um, Redline Magazine had a perhaps a midlife, not so much a crisis, but just kind of a change up. So it used to be very, yeah, like modified cars and whatnot, but it was under the same umbrella at what was future publishing at the time in being, yeah, very modified car scene. So they switched it up to being high performance car magazine. So it was all about modding your car for the Nürburgring rather than, you know, a bomb down to South End on Saturday night, yeah. <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was it was definitely those kind of magazines for me. But um, funnily enough, my dad, I mean, he does he does something else now, but he uh, printed magazines, funnily enough, for about oh. 20, 27 years, he told me, man and boy. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, for, for different bits and pieces. So he he worked um, for Herons, Wyndham Heron in, in Essex. Um, it's gone under now, like many kind of print companies, which we'll touch on later on. Uh, but yeah, he he worked there for years. So he he used to bring home all manner of magazines for me to read. Um, invariably, uh, because there were like yeah, problems or mess ups. So like, I, I remember one time we had like <laughs> 60 um, Land Rover monthly magazines that just had the front and back cover. And then it was a perfect bound magazine, which means there are no staples. It's all, all glue. Um big thick chunky magazine just full of blank paper <laughs> so for about, for about six years as a kid I had this infinite supply of drawing books and coloring books basically because it was these Land Rover monthlies you know? <laughs> brilliant and um, which yeah I, I could still I still vividly rem- vividly remember the cover and what it looks like to that, this that's day. funny because I used to go to school with um, my exercise books and they always used to have like a collage of custom car magazine um <laughs> pictures on them yeah you, you, yours were pre-done yeah, it was yeah, exactly like that. boy. Exactly done. Exactly that. It's so yeah. funny. But then, yeah, so he, he used to bring home, um, yeah, those, but then other magazines that just have a random read. There was like, I remember camping magazines, uh, fishing magazines, um, 442 magazine, a football magazine, which yeah, I yeah. absolutely yeah. loved. Yeah, I, yeah that I, was good. That I was adored good. it. Um, and there was a, and again, this is again something I'd like to touch on later on in terms of, um, we, we remember nice articles or nice features in magazines and a regular that 442 used to do, which I adored, was You're the Boss. And there were four set questions and it was basically your fantasy story of managing a football club. And and it like, you know, one would be, you know, who is the team and give them an outline, what's the personality like? Question two, how much money to spend? Question three, what was the outcome and blah, blah, blah. And it was, yeah, some fantastic examples of creative writing where people would be like, yes, you know, I'm manager of half assed United and we always finish mid-table and blah, blah, blah. It was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, there was 442. Then there was Redline magazine, which I think by then I was definitely sort of mid-teens and get getting into perhaps moving away from football fanaticism and more into automotive. So Redline was kind of hitting that kind of niche. And then it went on to Fast Car, which I, I kind of ended up working for. So um, what I think for me growing up, just to go back to your question, Andy, what um, what I loved about magazines as a kid was there, there was a magazine for every niche. 
And I was quite intrigued by that. You know, if, if you think of any topic, now we take it for granted because, you know, there, there's, there's everything for everyone these days. But, you know, 25 years ago or whatever, it was kind of amazing to think, well, there's a whole like 150 page, 160 page magazine, not just dedicated to cars, but to people who modify them or to people that go fishing abroad. And like, it, and that, that just, I don't know, that blew my mind, you know, it really yeah. did. And went into those topics to such granular detail. I think that was the other thing. I think that's a bit, you know, and we're going to keep drawing comparisons with, you know, the internet and YouTube and things and print. I think that's a bit like YouTube and, you know, the, the podcast airwaves now. Because I used to, you know, I went from, you know, when I was, when we were in the fifth year and we were allowed to go out, you know, to get our lunch from school, I used to buy car magazines with my dinner money and I'd had to eat Space Raiders, 10 piece Space Raiders <laughs> for my lunch all week because I bought performance bikes or Superbike or Volksworld or oh, and Porsche World. Volksworld, yeah. Um, oh. You know, as well as, as getting my auto car. And, um, and you're right, there was a magazine for everyone. And I used to think for a long time that some of the writing, because I was a real disciple of the people that were writing in uh, Auto Car Magazine at the time. You know, I thought that was real high quality stuff. And I used to read some of the niche magazines and think that they were a bit, you know, some of the, you know, they weren't very insightful. You know, they weren't, you know, really breaking anything. I wasn't really learning anything. It was interesting because I was seeing stuff that I was curious about, but I didn't feel like I was learning about about the things really. Um, you know, lots of those magazines have gone out of business now, but yeah. a lot of those people are now peddling stuff on the airwaves and across YouTube. So that's a home for them now, um, you know, which is which is quite interesting as well. Yeah, I, I think, again, the, the magic of magazines for me boils down to um, wonderful writing, evocative pictures. This is growing up, by the way, you know, my kind of perspective as, as a teen on it. Um, a sense of community and the rhythm it gave to your life as well. So, you know, on the second Wednesday of every month, you know, the new magazine's out and it'd be a trip to the shops to go and get it. And there'd be like excitement to that. You know, you're going there with a purpose is to so pick up the latest mag. So yeah. gutted if it didn't make delivery though, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but that's well, if you it, had it on order, it. if you had on order, then the person behind the counter had to get it from below the counter because that was on order. You know, oh yeah. The end of the Yeah. Yeah. But I think I think you'll find that the the people that do the best podcasts I think now are the people that have been in magazines. So the people that have written about cars and spent the majority of their life doing print stuff. What, but, why do you think that is then, Neil? Do you think it's just um, they they are articulate with words? I think I think they're um, the words that they use are different words to what we would use. They come out with. I don't know, just bigger, longer, more, you know, just different words. And I think that that just makes for, a, I don't know, just makes the podcast more interesting. Chris Harris on a podcast, he's really, really good on a podcast. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. You know, uh, if you listen to Lee on a podcast, you know, Lee's Lee's been doing magazines all his life. I think, I think people just come across in a very knowledgeable way because they've got so much information in their head about cars from the amount of articles that they've written nothing really trips them up. So I yeah. think I prefer listening to podcasts with, from people that have been in magazines. I know what you mean, Neil. I think, you know, the beauty of YouTube and podcasting is that there's space for everyone, you know, and the bad thing about YouTube and podcasting is that there's space for everyone. <laughs> um, you know, so, but, but you know, somebody who is 
a professional who's trained mm. and is you know qualified to some uh, degree or experienced in publishing writing mm. or broadcasting you know and invariably has some of the qualities which will make them good at youtube or at um or at podcasting i mean you must be absolutely shooting yourself when you're writing your first article and then it but then it actually goes to print and it gets published i mean what an achievement that is for a young person in a magazine but then you've got the added pressure then of following that up either weekly or monthly or as some are now quarterly but what an achievement that is to have your first article i mean lee for you it must have been you know like fantastic and even for max i mean max has often said that you know to see his words there in print is so you know makes him feel so good and so proud and yeah, i think i think there's no getting away from that in magazines i mean listening to yourself on a podcast is still pretty cool but seeing yourself in print i don't think you can get anything better than seeing yourself in print yeah what was your first article lee uh great are you question. proud of it are you great proud question. of it <laughs> Yeah, I am. My my first article was for my um it was for my local paper doing work experience. Yeah. And uh what was it? I'm sure it was something to do with like a Catholic school or something. Like having it's like it's <laughs> yeah, his intake was down by like 10% and we were looking at why or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I was really pleased to write that. I know that's obviously nothing to do with this podcast. I, I know what you mean. I, what what you're saying there, I, I just feel like with magazines um, and and that kind of old school of old, old school journalism, where almost like the the school of hard knocks, I suppose. Yeah, you know, it's to get to the stage where yeah, your work is printed in in this printed publication or whatever it is, whether it's a newspaper or magazine or whatever. So much kind of um, qualifications, and then just yeah, mm. doing your doing your time at a place, and you know, it's a bit like being a pilot and flying a plane. You're not just given a plane midair and going. No. Oh, there you go. You can just you take the reins now. We're up, but it's fine. You know, there's so much training that goes into getting to that point. Whether's with new media, yeah, you 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 lose a sense of that, which is good and bad. I think YouTube um, and other medias. Because I don't just want this conversation to turn into a YouTube versus magazines. That's not fair no. to either. Um, but you know, yeah, as, exactly as Max said, you, YouTube. The, the best and worst of it is everybody can have a go. Um, so it's a very even playing field and it should in theory become a meritocracy from that point. I don't believe it is uh, because it still blows my mind that, that more people watch somebody going to get a coffee in a car that gets 300,000 views, whereas I'll try and do an in-depth review of the exact same car from a journalistic point of view and 5,000 people watch it. And, and half of me is going, wow, there are 300,000 people in this world that are neglecting time with their wife, kids, friends, loved ones to watch some guy do a coffee run on YouTube. But that's another story. Now going back to the magazine and the journalist, but if, if, if you was to meet, what I like about the magazine journalists is when you meet them in real life, one, you have an instant respect for the person, say someone like Carl Fortune. I mean, what a lovely guy that guy is. And to meet him and just to chat to him, say like, while the photographer is taking pictures of your car because you're doing a magazine shoot for someone. So while while the photographer is taking pictures, he'll happily just chat to you for 20 minutes, half an hour. And you can ask him any question you like. And he's got an encyclopedia brain on every single car because he has cars that he literally just takes home and they hire his cars. So he actually uses them on a day-to-day, daily basis. So he knows every little quirk, every bad thing about it, every good thing about it. 
And that's what you get in print. You get the you get the good bits and the bad bits because these guys take them home and they use them for three, four days or for a week at a time. Whereas on a YouTube video, they're literally queuing up at a racetrack or, or they get it for a day and then they have to hand it back. I am so pleased you've brought that up. That is an absolutely golden thing. And I'm, I'm genuinely, because we've not discussed this beforehand, I'm pleased that a member of the public um, or a member of the enthusiast community has picked up on that because that is so crucial and um, is under underrated or overlooked, certainly, um, I think, by people um, in the PR side of the industry. So you know, uh, me, for example, the, the loans you used to get on the press cars, they used to be eight days, you know, the Monday till the Monday. So, you, I mean, A, it would give you a lot of like good leeway um for weather which in this country is crucial because mm. it pisses it down most of the time um but then yeah you know if you're doing a road test against another car you know older cars have mechanical problems it just gives you a bit more leeway to get the feature in done and dusted um and to take it to nice places you know you should go okay so if i've got the car for eight days brilliant let's do a, a three-day trip through wales really get to know this car get under its skin and whatnot because of the rise of other medias that have kind of um uh yeah, impinged on on magazine space, if you like, in the media sphere, PR agencies, yeah, rightly to some extent, are saying, well, we need to perhaps give these cars to more people, i.e. YouTubers. Now, again, there's no kind of line as to what makes a good YouTuber or a bad YouTuber. What makes a good or a bad magazine half the time is the fact that they can afford to be published. Mm. But with, with YouTube, that, that opens up to anyone. So these PR companies and teams are saying, okay, well, we've got to spread our same amount of cars more thinly so it comes down from a week's loan comes down to 48 hours yeah. you know or like you say a, a there and back up the road and that that's especially when you're dealing with something on a granular level that's not enough and it doesn't allow you to do the proper diligence on the car that you need to do when then people are contacting you and saying hey and sometimes there are specs on the line where people are saying look i'm specking this car i'm fortunate enough to get xyz you've lived with the car. What do you think? Mm. And a quick up and down on the road doesn't quite suffice and doesn't, doesn't really do anything justice other than a, a bit of clickbait. And it's funny what you were saying, Max, earlier on with YouTube videos, you don't believe that they cover things in the same way or perhaps the same detail, have the same approach as a, as a traditional auto car test. I agree with that. And the reason I think that's the case is videos are judged by clickbait and holding yeah. people's attention if you've already walked into a shop and bought the magazine then your attention is one already you're yeah. going to sit down and give that article the time it needs to properly mm. um properly take it in you know whether it's on on youtube now you're you're you know you're you're always one second away from being clicked off and onto the next thing yeah, so they yeah. might have to cut things out that might perhaps seem a bit more beige but actually are probably really bloody important yeah, yeah. and that's a good point actually because i think about you know why i'm interested in these things and if you take you know time out of the equation say everybody's got the same time with the car you know everyone's got a week um, you know, somebody's seven days versus somebody else's seven days, going to what Neil's saying about somebody like Kyle, you know, just because you've got a car for seven days and you can live with it doesn't mean that you can assess the car in an objective fashion because you might not. And I don't mean, can you drive it quickly around a track? I mean, can you objectively assess the abilities of a car? And having done that or not, can you articulate that um, in, a, in an interesting and uh, an articulate way to the viewer or to the reader? And, uh, you know, whether you've got seven hours or seven days with the car, some people can't do that. 
um, but they might still get the car because of various other, you know, appeals of new media and, you know, other, other things, but then maybe not everybody's looking for the same thing from, from the, from the video as I am. I'm looking for the same stuff generally as I am from a magazine. It's something that I haven't got access to that I want to know about. I want to know what it's like. I want to know what people think about it. And I'm going to people whose opinions I respect. You know, we go back to Angel Frankel, we've got you, you got Kyle, you know, all sorts of people like that. Some other people in new media, I don't give a shit what they think about the car. Um, mm. You know, they don't value their opinion or their ability to assess it. But when Carl came down to Beachy Head, so when we did the um, the GT3 with the ducktail on it, his car, his was an RS6 with 22-inch stupid wheels on it and everything. So, But I sat in it while he went and drove mine, and that that car looked as though it was his car. It had all his crap in it. It had bits of paper on the floor. It had his cup. It had his water bottle in the cup holder. It had a jacket on the back seat. He'd taken his kids to school that morning in it. It was all dirty. It probably had some dog airs in it. So it, it, it looked as though his car because he had it for a week. And that's what people want to know. Because people, people want to know what it's like to live in that car for a certain amount of time. So things like living with 22-inch wheels living with all the silly bits of carbon stuff that were on the outside. He can tell people what it's like taking these kids to school, going up a dirt track, doing, you know, doing all the stuff that we have to do sometimes. And I think you, you really only get that in magazine articles. Yeah. I think um, it'd be worth it at this point, because I've been editing magazines for 11 years. Um, but Max, you have been reading magazines and been highly passionate about magazines for a lot longer than that so would you mind just explain to listeners uh your your history with that media yeah well you know it did start with the um well I suppose it started with motorsport magazine it's funny Andy when you were saying about cutting the pictures out of um custom car and having them in your in your book I used to have a I had a chalk pinboard in my bedroom and I used to go through the classifieds in motorsport and classic and sports car um and classic car magazine and i'd cut out cars it was like fantasy garage before um you know you could stick it up on the internet and i'd pin all these pictures up on my on my pin board and that was uh you know that's where the wednesday want comes from really or nine works ultimately it's <laughs> for me doing that um and um you know so i was i was really obsessing about this thing so whatever phase i was in whether it was cobras or ferrari daytonas or uh, 32 high boy hot rods. It was always Porsches. There'd always be some element of that up on the pinboard. So that was really, um, you know, because that's the stuff I was thinking about all day long. And I wanted to know about it. So when I started my motor subscription, I was 10, you know, so I couldn't drive a car. You know, the only cars I went in were the cars that my dad had. So we had a Mark II Golf GTI, so that's pretty cool. But, you know, I wanted to know about this stuff. And Motor Magazine was an insight in, into that. So, you know, because I wanted to know what the cars were like, because I wanted to imagine myself driving them. Um, And then as I got older and I came closer to driving and these things became more aspirational, I was even more interested in knowing what these things were like. And at the time there, so this is um, through the 90s, I suppose, should we say. So in Porsche terms, you know, my first new 911 was the 964. So I was well Mm -hmm. into that's probably auto car and motor at that point. So uh, all of the road tests on all the 964s. And then they did other really good things. Mm -hmm. Like um, I remember an article that Peter Robinson wrote. I mean, Peter Robinson was a great writer Um, and he had a four wheel drive manual 
964 cab and he was off in Europe in the snow in it. So you got the objective road tests that they did on, on, on the car. I remember everybody slating the 964RS. I remember Andrew Frankel saying the 964RS was one of the five worst 911s ever made. <laughs> um, you know, because it was such a hard riding car, terrible on the road. But they, you know, as as well as those road tests, you've got the you've got the experience stories as well. I remember Stephen Sutcliffe coming back from um from the Porsche factory with an owner who had a um 911 Turbo S, a yellow one with the speed lines, you know, the 964 Turbo S, if you like. Um, and you know, Porsche GB didn't have that press car. So, but you'd see the pictures of it, it's like the best looking 911 ever. When that came out, but Sutcliffe came back with an owner, a mystery owner, who was putting his collection. They drove it back from Stuttgart, so you got, you know, an experience of what that car was like. Awesome. Um, so, you know, it was feeding, feeding my imagination constantly, and I was just hoovering it up and logging it all in my mind. Uh, What's so, your loft um, like then, uh, Max? Is your loft um, just full of boxes of old magazines? Yeah, most of them are down here around my feet now because I went, right. I went to get some of them so I could have a look. I'd like to say that the Max's background on Zoom is actually blurred out. I've got this vision. If we take off the blurredness, we just see piles and piles and piles of magazines back there. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You know, and so in the course of looking for it, I found the autocar road test on your GT3, Neil, which is quite interesting. Ah, okay. Um, but they also did other really good things. Like when it was the 40th anniversary of the 911, um, they did... They used the 996.2 GT3 as the road test for that issue. But Chris Harris wrote a thing uh, where he compared the new, what was then the new GT3 with uh, 3.2 Club Sport, 2.7 RS and 9.93 RS. And that was really interesting because mm. Chris is a, you know, is a, is a, is a proper car journalist. You know, he's obviously gone off and he's doing his broadcasting there. But why I was interested in that was because the 2.7 RS is the legend, but he assessed the 2.7 RS objectively against a new GT3 and the 993RS. And I'm all about the 993RS, as you know. And he's saying here, the 993RS is the best car that Porsche have ever, ever made. So that was just fueling the fire <laughs> of my 993RS impression. And because he wrote it, that meant something. I've heard him talk about the 993RS, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and that's part of, the, part of the interest is the evolving thing. You know, and Lee knows I've got this thing, you know, this bee in my bonnet about the gestation of a 997 generation through the magazine from the launch where you complain about the steering and you say it's too big and too heavy mm. um, for the road test. And then you come back to it midway through its life, maybe Gen 2, you think, oh, actually, it's pretty good. Then the RS or GT3 comes out and you love it. Um, and then it gets to the end of his life and you get a bit sort of whimsical about it and say, actually, it's really bloody brilliant. And then the <laughs> next one comes along and it's like, oh, it's too big. It's too heavy. The steering's rubbish compared to the last one. <laughs> and that is, save, you yeah. know, you can, you, you can look back and see those <laughs> themes, especially with the poor turbo, you know, the turbo, you know, the last one was so much of a GT. This one's a much better drive. You know, we've been through that painfully through the 997 and the 991 now to the 992, but you can also look back and see things like how the, uh, 996 was received when it came out as a brilliant car and the 986 Boxster S as well you know when that came out you know the best mainstream car that Porsche make you know that's what Autocar said about it at the time you know stuff that's absolutely true and then but you know those cars go on their own journeys don't they and get derided and and slated yeah. you know I could you know, I could read the stuff out about little Irish here Lee from in 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 the you know in in, in, in the day you had the best you've got the best car in the world in 1999 
<laughs> you know, I think it was oh, a matchbox in 1999, personally. But yeah, <laughs> but what, what, what I love about the, the and the real sentiment behind what you're saying there, Max, is you remember all of these fantastic articles. They have stuck in your brain and the journalist and, names and, and and never left. Yeah, and what yeah. you know, and this is what I say where. Um, and I've, you know, I've, yes, you'll say, okay, oh, he's going to defend a magazine. We, well, yeah, of course, am because I believe in magazines. And what I'm saying there, Max, is you remember vividly all these mm. features and the writers' names and what they said, etc. Um, compare that to social media. You don't go, oh, I remember three years ago. Do you remember Matey Boy did that amazing Instagram post? Oh, it changed my life. Yeah, didn't do it because social media and and to a large extent, a lot of online media is throwaway. Yeah, whether's magazine as a format is articulated and it's curated to have a limitless lifespan and that's why you remember it there's so much more love has gone into it it's so much Mm. more evocative to the enthusiast and that's something that i think personally digital media certainly in its current format will never match and as a as a case in point so i've got here I move the mic out the way. Yes. So for the September benefit of 87. Oh, yes. There we go. So Max already knows. Max already knows. This is Car Magazine for those listening at home. It's September 1987. And it just says on the front, there are four pictures. And then it just says, there will never be another month like this. And that it was has the a- month. That was because that was the month I passed my driving test. Oh, was it? Ah. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, so you, you'll you'll remember it vividly then, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's there's um, a Countach on there, an F40, a GTO versus a Ferrari GTO versus Aston Martin Zagato, and then a road test and a 959 on the road. Now that cover is largely devoid of cover lines because it has nothing to sell. The pictures sell themselves, mm. and again, very limited words because there's no SEO norms to stick to or you know like yeah. oh oh my you know influencer style oh my god i did this in capital letters to get attention you know with uh, some emoji hacked onto the end of it it doesn't need it it just lets the quality speak for itself i think that's one of the best car magazine covers of all time because yeah. it has nothing on it i, I can I even was... remember buying that you know in yeah i can september 87 i wasn't mm. very old but i remember walking to the news agents um and going in probably not looking for that magazine because I wouldn't have known um, and seeing it on the shelf and buying it. Fantastic. Don't you think car was the cut above everything else at that time? Oh, 100%. It was just like 100%. twice what every, any other magazine was. Yeah. Um, is that due, there was a, some sort of Australian influence, I believe. Does anybody recognize? recognize that there was um, an Australian editor or owner that that brought like a lot of Australian type of um, some of the writers was it, well, uh, Peter right, Robinson's yeah. Australian, isn't he? And his um, was Mel Nichols. Is he Australian? Mel Nichols. Yes. Yeah. So I think there was a few Australian guys and they had brought across the, the sort of narrative and the, the look of the magazine, the feel of the magazine. And that's where car um, had that elevated style against, against everything else because it was that come from the new world i guess how, how did car get themselves into that position Lee? was it the the was it the editorial team that took a stance that they believed in that, that enabled them to elevate themselves into that position because people do talk about car in the 70s and 80s and 90s as as being as andy says a you know a cut above the rest yeah that's a great question max it's not it's not one i know the answer to yeah. i'm afraid um because I, because I didn't, you know, I was an occasional reader of Car back then. Because Car was a, you know, was 
you know, quite expensive for an 11, 12 year old to buy. And it wasn't one of the subscriptions that my dad got. So I got odd, odd issues. I've since gone back and looked at things, you know, and I've, I've got, um, you know, I've got a little compilation, a couple of car compilations. So I've got the famous convoy story that Mel Nichols wrote where they went to Lamborghini to pick up some cars for Lamborghini yeah. GB, a, a Countach, maybe an Espada and a Jalper or something like that. You know, <laughs> and they had to wait in, in Italy for three days before they were ready. Um, and then I had to drive them back, you know, journeys that I've since done in my, in my 997. And that's a really legendary story. Um, and I remember when, um, when Chris Harris spent his own money on a Gallardo and he wrote a story for auto car where he went and picked it up and brought it back. And it was in the spirit of the, of, of Mel Nichols convoy article. And actually, if you read that now, it's bloody fantastic. I read it when I was on holiday in Norfolk over half term. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, I recommend everybody to, to, to dig out a copy of that and read it. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It really fires the imagination. I wish, yeah. I wish the magazines every, every now and again, maybe every three years or something would do like a greatest hits. So like a, 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 a pop artist does a greatest hits, you know, just do a magazine with all the best articles as voted by the readers or something over the last three years, five years, 10 years, or whatever you want to do it as. I think that would go down an absolute storm because that would be a magazine you would keep. You would keep on your coffee table, keep in your magazine rack. And as Max said, you would continue to go back to it and read those yeah. articles over and over again. Because you're yeah, putting all those... Because you're putting all those massive big piles of magazines. Brilliant. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. best of car. And Max. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, there you go. The best yeah. of, yeah. There you go. So this, this is a hard cover thing, and it's got... Um, oh, at least it was a hard cover, was it? Have you got it's the got the Conway story in it, which was in uh, February 1977, issue of Car Magazine. So what's that then, Max? The best of car magazine from over what period? Uh, 70s and 80s, this one. Oh, okay. And, and I've got and a 60s and 70s one as well. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Um, yeah. And it's got some adverts in it, you know, some old adverts, sort of pictures that you probably like, Andy, some of those adverts from back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, slinky, slinky pictures, should we say. Hey. Um, and yeah, it's really good. I got them on eBay or, or Amazon or something oh, like that. okay. There you go. And the Coney Shock absorber oh it's all blurred out mate oh, it's it's blurred. Blurred. it should be i think that's probably good for your, <laughs> your um so uh you know and, and i think that's one of the things that people are talking about when they reminisce about car and i think that's also one of the things that people are talking about when they now reminisce about evo you know the early yeah. days of evo yeah. mm. i remember being quite sad when performance car closed you know because i was a reader of that avidly but you know evo came along you know as a you know with, with Harry, you know, putting up the money and, uh, you know, some of the cars and a lot of the ideas. And they did a bit of that, um, you know, experience stuff, didn't they? They did a lot oh, of Oh, absolutely. It was, well, that was the heart and soul and of the magazine. Yeah. E e Evo, I think, yeah, for, for, for decades, Car was the um, elite magazine. Yeah. And then Evo just came along um, post-millennium and just took things up a notch in such a huge way in terms mm. of um, the quality of the journalism. They, it, they just, it was all elite journalists yeah. at the absolute top of the game. And, but also the um, uh, production values as well were just sky high and, and just, you could just tell the whole magazine was made with love, yeah. you know? And um, yeah, say, so, you know, I mean, we, we used to love it at T911 when, when the, the, new issue of evo landed 
you know, and, and, we, and we really did. And we, we used to love kind of pouring over it and seeing how they approach certain features, what they did with it. Again, come down to the production values, beautiful photography, um, really nice layout, which I think that's when they really changed over car because car, I think, was and magazines in general seem to go on this cycle between slowly adding more to the page or let's let's just let's put a, a box out in give a bit more value mm. or let's put let's put a, a you know a nice pull quote in or let's put a text back in and give a bit more value a bit more value and then somebody which is kind of what happened to evo they started it last when they said um let's let's give more by giving less if you know what i mean mm. so let's let's strip back let's pair this right back let's just have on a lovely dps double page spread let's just have one shot of a car going up a mountain pass left to right, left to right. And it makes your eye follow. And then everybody else starts. Okay. Yeah. Good idea. We'll take, let's, let's get rid of the box outs. Box outs are silly. And then everybody strips it back off and then it kind of, it will start again. And, and if you do see over, you know, decades, it's very cyclical where magazines kind of go like that. It's yeah. you know, nowhere else to go. Really, and were but. they able to do some of that or did they perhaps think that they wanted to do some of that because they were a privately owned funded group of people sort of doing it yeah, themselves I, so they didn't have the corporate influences yeah I, th- I think exactly that and I remember a time when I was reading car and Evo both that were having huge sales figures huge but um car just seemed a lot more commercial every other page was an advert and it was very you know flash here box out there bosh 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 you know whereas Evo was just it really you know it's the thrill of driving but it was for the love of cars cars is all that mattered yes obviously it, it surely had to make financial sense as a business without ever having worked there or I don't know anybody there but you could you could just tell and that's what I mean it was just made of a bit more love you know the cars mm. really were the star rather than outright commercial interest right let's suck as much money as we can into the advertising coffers yeah. because you know there's a big PLC board to please it didn't seem to be that way yeah it was the cover that sold the magazine wasn't it so Evo's always been famous for the cover just normally just the one picture cover just the just the one, you know, there's no boxes all over it. It is just the one picture cover. That's what I always remember about Evo, just the striking um, quality of the cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what and, sells it, I think. And they were, they differentiated themselves by being a little bit of a niche as well, because it was a performance, like performance car magazine had been. I can't remember what magazine, e- EMAP or whoever it was, m- you know, mashed performance car into. They, they combined two magazines, didn't they, that, that left the gap for Evo to emerge. But Evo differentiated itself from something like Car. I mean, maybe I thought I didn't need to read Car because I was reading Autocar. Um, you know, so it was a general car magazine with road tests and assessments and that sort of thing. And in doing so, I was missing out on some of the good stuff in Car as well. But what Evo were doing were they were a car magazine for you know, enthusiast cars, weren't they? New cars and some older cars, but enthusiast cars, you know, they didn't yeah. do the two litre TDI hatchback test. No. And maybe they do now. And maybe that's where people feel they've lost their way Good slightly. Point. Been yeah. Bought by Dennis or whoever it was who bought them. Yeah. Dennis. Dennis. But there yeah. was definitely a magic period at Evo. Yeah. There's, um, it, it'd be nice to touch on because some magazines have opened up this kind of new format of running, which I know um, some of you guys are really into. So it'd be nice, nice to investigate that shortly. Um, for, for me in the industry, it'd be nice to offer a couple of um, tidbits, I think, on why I think print has struggled and but also why it's really mm. strong as well. We said at the top of the podcast, we all we all don't believe magazines are dying. It'd be nice to perhaps just underline why, why certainly I think that's the case. But 
we, we've mentioned this so many times inadvertently on this podcast already when we're talking about magazines we're comparing it to the internet and and the inter- the internet has broken a lot of magazines and particularly a lot of um just mass mass market magazines a lot of them have already fallen by the wayside it's actually the niche magazines with the strong loyal audience that have have kind of stayed strong and kind of kept their head above water which is lovely mm-hmm. um you know, you'd look at it back in the day, and particularly magazines like where I used to work at Fast Car, which was aimed at a, a young male audience that didn't have a lot of disposable income and anything they did have, it would go on their car. You know, at, at that sort of end or that sort of level, you'd begrudge spending a fiver on a magazine when you can get the information or some sort of information on a forum or a Facebook group for free. Yeah, okay. So people stopped buying it. Um, and that kind of that killed off the magazine's kind of USP as a as a source of info as to why you might go and get it. You know, you might only buy a magazine for that one buyer's guide and everything else is a bonus, as an example. But like yeah. di- digitization hurt that. Same as YouTube as well, and it's it's on your phone. You don't, you know, you can sit on your phone in your armchair and watch a video or put it on your telly. You don't need to walk down a shop first to get it, which is why a lot of Magazines are changing that model, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, costs as well, like cost of paper has gone absolutely stratospheric. Um, even before COVID, it was it was going up in, in a real big way. Post-COVID, it's been ridiculous. Um, transportation costs as well, such as fuel has gone through the roof. Um, and, and these aren't struggles that are unique to kind of publishing, of course, but I mean, print companies, as I said earlier on, my dad working for a, a huge, huge print company employed hundreds of people, more and more kind of redundancies. My dad was was one of them. And then in the end, they they um, they went under because it's it's unviable with just the pure cost of paper to begin with. Um, and actually, not a lot of people know this, but there are a lot of publishing companies. Sorry, there are a lot of print companies being propped up via loans from publishing companies currently just to stay open because if the print company goes out of business well the publishing company's in a lot of hot water as well right Yeah. yeah um but it's 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 such a difficult trading proposition right now as i say due to the cost of transportation and the cost of papers or raw material for it to be financially viable so yeah the the print companies are being propped up by publishing companies which is ludicrous you know mm-hmm. it, it's it's absolutely ludicrous um so that that makes that makes things kind of difficult and then of course from an ad client point of view ad clients these days they like trackability or well, how successful of has this campaign been you know how, how many people have come to my website from yours and how many people have responded to the newsletter because it should give us that amount of clicks and that was our target and blah 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 with an ad in a magazine it's kind of that you, you you can't really yeah, trace it. Traceable, it, yeah. it might have been it might have been really successful. You don't know. You don't know. So that's that's kind of where the where the struggle has been. And I it's funny that digitization has become the nemesis of print because I remember in oh I'm gonna say late I'm gonna say it was September 2011. It must have been because it was when it's, Apple always launches new phones and iOS in around September mm. time, and um, Apple Newsstand was launched. So I'm sure it was September 2011. And yeah, Apple Newsstand was launched. It was front and center on your iPhone on the homepage. You couldn't delete it. Everybody who owned uh, a a phone of the fruit-based variety 
had access to a newsstand, which was magazines. And I remember uh, us guys at Future and uh, all the automotive section, we went down the pub that Friday afternoon and we had a monumental knees up because we thought, wow, the entire industry has been saved. Um, looking back, incredibly naive, but we, we just thought, wow, every, everybody's going to read our magazine on their tiny little smartphone screen. <laughs> <laughs> and you go, mm, yeah, I wonder why that didn't work. But we just thought, you know, with all oh, these interactive covers and you can click on cars that could take you through to, you know, specking one and this and that, whatever. But obviously it's not worked out that way. Um, but yeah, the, the internet is a real nemesis of print. Yeah. What I will say is, I think that's the strength of print, is the internet was invented to escape reality, right? These days, we all use reality to escape the internet. And that's why a lovely printed product in your hand, away from any connectivity that you are, whatever screen you've been stuck to all day, it's just time for you to relax and unwind and indulge in your favourite hobby or subject whatever it is and no other form of media can give you that well that's why the biggest the biggest newsstands are always at airports aren't they because people you know everybody to a man goes on an airplane whether it's long haul or short haul with a magazine in their hand because you can't get the internet thank god um well you, you can nowadays if you want to pay for it but mo- most people don't and they just flick through a magazine and it yeah. sort of t- takes them back to reality like you say i bet there's no one here that always reads a magazine back to front like i do i i I only only read magazines back to front i've got a thing about that i i kind of go through it i thumb with my left thumb so back with my left thumb Uh, i kind of i do i read i do i've got a bit of a sort of yeah thing that i do is i i go through it front to back sort of just looking at what i like then I'll read the articles that I want, and then I will go through from the back to the front mm. just to make sure I haven't missed anything. Mm. So, yeah, I, I do. I only, only ever read it from back to front. Neil, I'm going to say, and, and I, I by and large do the same, so I wonder if it's for the same reasons as you. As a, I, I like sports, so when I pick a newspaper yeah, up, yeah. I do exactly the same. I start at the back and go back forward page, because yeah. I read the sports first and then yep. I end up with the, with the yep, politics and whatnot. I obviously don't read the article back to front. I, I go to the beginning <laughs> of the article. I'm not that clever. <laughs> I'm not Chinese. You know, I, I can't read Chinese and Arabic. But um, I, I don't know. I, I, I just – and also in a magazine, to keep you – to you know, it's a bit like a TV program or something or a YouTube video, if you like. The best bits are towards the back of the magazine because they want to keep you interested in the magazine and not just get all the best bits halfway and then you just – like chuck it down and then don't read the rest because you've got to get through all the advertising in the magazine. So, so they have to spread out the love through the magazine. So the thing on the front cover is hardly ever going to be in the first 10 to 15 pages, is it? It's always going to be towards the back of the magazine. So that's yeah. true. When Lee, when people are talking about, we were talking about heydays earlier on, you know, if there is such a thing. Yeah. Um, and when people talk about the heyday of print and editorial budgets being much bigger, is that based a lot on ad revenue and not having to split ad revenue between print and internet? Um, or, or is it, you know, or, or was it circulation figures? And is there a direct correlation between circulation of print and the internet as well? Yeah, um, interesting question. It'd be funny if we had an advertising person on here, they might say the opposite because ad people always say, um, and this this doesn't 
straight away answer your question, Max, so bear with me. But advertising people always say advertising is more important than editorial in terms of how successful a magazine is. Uh, but for myself as an editor, I always say, look, if 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 nobody reads our magazine, nobody's yeah. seeing your little advert <laughs> yeah. on. So, um, so, yeah, it's it's not kind of so much a split between kind of print and online to answer your question. Um, it tends to kind of get um, they, they tend to be separated anyway. So online revenue will be split from the start away from from print. Um, but I, I do think it comes down to um, declining audience or reader figures which as, as we all know has, has happened on a huge scale i mean fast car used to sell like 150,000 copies a month yeah um, a month you know when when i was there in 2011 they were doing about 10,000 right so i mean that is some monumental drop isn't it so more than 90 percent um i think being absolutely yeah. terrible at maths gone so obviously your attractiveness as a um commercial entity for, for others to be involved in as an advertising partner it's, it's obviously not as attractive so you can't command the same amount as you would for a say a full page advert or whatever mm-hmm. so every everything kind of gets reduced and back in the day um your readership figures were published um you had abc figures and i, yeah. I, can't, I yeah. can't remember what what that what that stands for it's like bureau of circulation audit bureau of circulation whatever so it'd be it'd be obvious you know you, you could see how much you were selling or how much you weren't so everything just kind of got reduced really and i suppose that's where 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 things have got reduced against the backdrop of um costs going up that makes a magazine as a business proposition incredibly difficult to get right you know and that's why you'll see a lot of uh, magazines the first thing that they'll change is paper quality you know and unfortunately a lot of magazines are printed on toilet paper essentially these days um we're a bit we're lucky with total 911 we've got a demographic and we've we've got a topic first of all that's a premium product and therefore we know our readership they don't mind spending good money on a good product so if we ever get to the stage where um we need to look at costs to protect um uh, profitability or whatnot we'd rather and we know that our audience would agree with us on this would rather people had to pay just an extra 50p just to keep or improve the quality of the magazine rather than paying the same amount but for an inferior quality product it just doesn't make sense not not when you spend thousands upon thousands of pound a year on awesome photography it doesn't make sense to print it on terrible paper yeah yeah Yeah. so that's i hope answers that kind of question it's kind of it's difficult in that regard um i remember when evo did that evo changed their paper didn't they and it was like oh like you got it through the post one week and it was like oh you just noticed straight away because it yeah. was it was just such a difference yeah i mean i, I guess there therefore must have been a big d- difference in quality in the photographs not that i probably noticed but to the trained eye it must have been a big difference yeah, they're just, I mean, A, like they they kind of, they just, they lose depth more than anything, photography. Right. I mean, the worst thing you can do is, you know, is go down in paper quality um, and then A, give the magazine to the reader, but also give it to the photographer that's taken there. They're, they've given you beautiful pictures yeah. and, and you know, you've essentially ruined them and, and rightly they get quite possessive about mm. that. So it makes it quite a difficult um slot for people to get right i think um but what i will say is even with magazines have gone up like incrementally over the past few years i'm talking about magazines generally here not necessarily our own or total 911 
Um, but for Total 11, as an example, it's £5.50. It's less than six quid for 20 to 30,000 words um, of absolute information, insight that's all kind of properly vetted by experts, the authors and publishers are held to account and whatnot. I mean, that's pretty good value for money. Yeah. Pretty good value for money, you know, even... Well, let's even just compare there. it to the normal consumable nowadays because people used to compare things to a, to a pint, but now it's compared to a cup of coffee. So your magazine is less than two cups of coffee, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, I'm, I'm still happy to compare it to a pint, to be honest. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, so yeah for, for, for one pint of beer, yeah, yeah. 20,000 words of informed uh fact and, and opinion of course there's opinion in there with living the legend but you know i mean that's that's just that's ludicrous and, and bearing in mind it's not throwaway media as we kind of spoke about earlier on and there's a bit of a sense of community in there you know you're more likely to say somebody at cars and coffee you know oh yeah you subscribe to total 11 as well rather than oh cool yeah you're on 997 parts for sale and wanted on facebook or whatever yeah. you know so yeah. Actually, I just looked it up. Um, Evo at its peak was 40,000 when it was sold in 2001. I actually thought it would be more than that. Yeah. Um, yeah, 40,000 was its peak. Yeah. Why um, then? So we, we spoke about how kind of difficult it is for, for magazines to kind of continue with the gusto. And this is generally speaking compared to uh, maybe 15 years ago and whatnot. Some magazines have kind of changed their model to go from a monthly newsstand proposition to quarterly and 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 you three really dig that if i'm not correct yeah I, I i prefer it i mean behind me up there i mean i've got road Rat magazine i've got some that i haven't even opened yet i haven't even started yet because i don't i think with magazines like that are different to things like evo and car magazine they're they're timeless so you could read number three of Road Rat in 10 years' time and it won't matter because there's because there's probably nothing current in it. It's all about older cars and um, classic cars and special cars and different cars and modified cars um, and about racetracks and about races and about, you know, about um, different things that car and also car and Evo do because they're very current. So I think those sort of things, you don't, you don't, you know, you're not under pressure to read them quickly. And with um, um, 3.0 magazine or 0.0.0 magazine, is is sort of the same as well. So that's quarterly. Roadrat is quarterly, I believe, as well. Um, but they're the ones you can literally just read at your leisure. So they're, they're more like a book that you would purchase a book. But it's a book to me. It's a book about um, It's a book about what we love, which is just cars in general. Whereas if you pick up a car magazine, as in car or auto car or Evo, there might be a lot in there that doesn't really interest you because it's like the the Octavia, you know, the Skoda Octavia or something like that. So you just like flick through that. Whereas I think the ones that are done on a quarterly basis, you're probably going to be interested in a lot more of that magazine or you're going to learn a lot more from that magazine about car um, um races of the past, old tracks, new tracks, old cars, famous cars, Miglamelia and all this sort of stuff. So I think you're going to learn a lot more from those, but it is literally a different demographic and a different genre. I don't think you'll find many younger people buying things like um, Road Rat. I think you're right, Neil. I think you don't, you talk about finding stuff that you're interested in that you wouldn't in a more regular 
monthly periodical. Mm. The beauty of the road rat is that you don't know that you're interested in it until you start so, reading 100%, 100%. it. But you want to read it because mm. the magazine is so beautifully produced mm. um, and so beautifully designed um, that it's a nice thing to have in your hand and to turn the pages mm. so you might not flick through it in the same way that you might a monthly no. periodical and you'll look at something because it's 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 visually interesting so you'll start to read it even if it even if it's not something you've looked at the contents page and gone to no. you'll just read it and it'll be beautifully written beautifully photographed beautifully designed beautifully laid out so you'll get drawn into it and you're absolutely right it's intentionally um timeless yeah. You know, the idea I've, I've been lucky enough to hang out a little bit with Mikey and with Peter and Matt who, who produce it. You know, I, I committed to road rat as a subscriber before it started because Mike Harvey was the editor and I had to read Mike, you know, back in the day. And I thought he was awesome. And when I saw that he was doing that, I didn't so much actually during the hugely successful top gear, um, you know, time, but as soon as I saw that he was, you know, the, the idea of road rat was appealing and the fact that he was doing it made it, for me feel like it was going to be legit mm. um you know i thought it's privately funded it's going to be beautiful but mikey harvey's involved so it's going to be legit um you know, and he's got guy berryman in full it full of integrity yeah and um so so i thought okay i'll subscribe mm. and it's fantastic but they, but they do it well by they then sell you the slip cases to go what is it every, yeah every one two three four yeah 40 pound slip four. case yeah so every four magazines but that but that's good because you're gonna that that keeps them in such good condition that you can pass these down to your kids and whatever and they they will learn the same sort of stuff all right cars will be a lot different when they go to drive cars whatever but they but they're still there's still that mainstream history of cars and these will be beautifully kept beautifully presented and you could pass them down to different people yeah 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 and that's 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 where they've been quite clever um especially with zero 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 magazine, it's either a $275 yearly subscription for four um, might be, well, it's, it's more if you live in the UK because you've got to pay the postage as well, or it's $999 a year. And then you receive them in a proper hardback version. Wow. <clears throat> See, I, I, I think I triple zero is a whole different thing for uh, oh, roadmap yeah. 1250 an issue. You know, I've said to Mikey, I think, it, you know, he said we can't really afford to do it like this. I said it'd be £25 an issue and it wouldn't be a problem. Triple zero is £75 an issue yeah. in the UK. I've, and that's, you know, that was, you know, I I had to work out some man. I thought about it for quite a long time. Um, but it was some of the, again, it was some of the contributors that were writing in it. Richard Mead and uh, for, for one that made me think, okay, I'm going to go mm. for it. And the way that I justified it in my mind, because it seemed even absurd even to me to pay £75 for a magazine, I I let some other su- subscriptions run out. I think maybe I had Octane or Magneto and something else, Motorsport, I think, and I let them lapse. And that was my excuse for getting triple zero. I'm glad um, you brought up Magneto. So I'd, I get sent Magneto every month, I presume, and it comes in a lovely cardboard case. And yeah, yeah. Magneto is a fantastic magazine, but I don't subscribe to it. So how do I get it? Is it is it through my bank or is it through a credit card? God knows. I don't know. Sure, it wasn't a present and you forgot to say thank you. No. <laughs> hey, just send me some a nice little thank you card, yeah? <laughs> Andy, or I'll it. Andy, you were going to say something um, a couple of minutes ago there, I think, when we, we yeah, were Yeah, I've, um, I've got a copy of Triple Zero magazine. I won it. Um, and, 
yeah, I can't believe it's 75 quid. <laughs> like, um, an issue. Um, it's a lovely magazine. And I, I know I kind of get what you're saying about, you know, that you don't need to read it and it's there for, for a long time. Cause I've actually hauled that bloody thing around holiday three times mm. and still not read it all. <laughs> You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to take that in hand luggage. You only get ten kilos, then. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Some of the yeah, writing so. in Triple Zero, though, I got completely lost in an article about seats once. Um, really, you know, nine eleven seats, so good, bloody fantastic. Writing. Yeah, and um, we know when they did that thing um, a few months ago about the the four liter RS nine nine seven, and they did that beautiful in, infographic about the, the worldwide distribution of colours PTS where they were delivered. And all that sort of thing, you know. Yeah, that, there's some nice that, research. That to RS article it. was, you know, it was just it's it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually brilliant. You know, I do you, occasionally do you get more and, than just the magazine. Is there any not for your seventy five pounds? You don't know because no, stickers, no, stickers. Well, you get a couple stickers, of stickers. I mean, it's. I mean, I'm not saying it's for everyone. I'm not no, saying yeah, everyone yeah. go out, you know, subscribe. You know, seventy five pound an issue. You know, you know, it's a lot of money, but I mean, I think it's pretty special. I wonder how many they're selling. This is the thing, and again, I don't, I'm no attachment to any of these other um, companies, and in, in some ways, it's kind of wrong to. Well, it is. It's wrong to speculate on on business plans, of course. Yeah. But what I will say is, if there was um, a tried and trusted way, because magazines generally they are trying to switch over, whether it's monthly or weekly or quarterly, it's to switch away from the newsstand, which costs money. To, to sit on a newsstand. I mean, no, nobody goes into shops really to buy magazines anymore, not with the frequency they used to. A lot of magazines are in WH Smith's voted the worst shop on the high street for five of the last six years. As an example, you go into the um, newspaper and magazine aisle in a supermarket. It's just a set of magazines looking across a lonely aisle at some wine gums on the other side. Nobody goes down there. So a lot of these companies are switching over to a subscription-based model where yeah. there's no cost to a newsstand to sit on there speculatively. Um, and it's straight to the enthusiast. They don't have to leave their house to get the media. Yeah. Now, that's that's fine. But the, the quarterly, which is a different take on things, and it's saying, okay, we, we won't be governed by time-oriented things like you know a new 992 gts road test because you know that comes and goes and by the time it's printed and sent to australia the next issue's out anyway mm -hmm. so like like neil like you're saying that timeless scenario that again conceptually is fine but nobody has nailed the model to perfection yet because if they had everybody would be doing it and 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 that's my thing and, and at the moment it seems there are many different ways to to, ha to have a go and many ways um, different brands are trying to do it. You know, as, as, as you were saying, Max, you, you know, you've got two different examples there being triple zero, which is 75 bucks a quarter or whatever. And then road wrap, which is 12 pound 50, huge price difference, mm -hmm. you know, um, whereas uh, most magazines that sit on a newsstand are around about a five a mark roughly, mm -hmm. you know, between, between four fifty and six quid. So it's kind of trying to work out how that works. And it comes down to a numbers game. So, Neil, exactly as you were saying, that, you know, it's very, the, the editorial is very niche and very targeted. Well, the more niche you go, the, the you know, the numbers get smaller in terms of your target audience. And so, therefore, your commercial um, attractiveness will obviously dwindle because people love numbers. Even if you say to them, look, you know, it doesn't matter 
that we, we've not got a hundred thousand readers that are just kind of sort of interested in cars we've got you know say uh, as an example you know two thousand that are just die hard car fans on our fancy magazine you know that that always carries more but people from an advertising point of view they love the numbers and so it's getting that right and where where do these magazines as commercial entities and that's that's the point all of these have to be commercial entities are successful in their own right where does that sit and how or how does that sit and how does that look like as well you know yeah those yeah. two have got to be careful because Roadrat, if they suddenly come out and said there was going to be 20 quid i don't think it would change at all but if zero if triple zero come out and suddenly said there was a hundred dollars i think that may change so i think you've got triple zeros at the peak the absolute peak of its price point whereas i think Roadrat has been very careful that they're no they're probably nowhere near it at the moment so they've got the room to grow their price thing, but triple zero, probably not. And going back to the other magazines, like say like Total 911, I think you're you're dead rightly when you say that if you had to put it out 50p, 60p, 70p, I don't think that would change the subscription whatsoever. No. Not change it whatsoever. Even if it went up a pound, I don't think that would change it whatsoever because people people realize people go for I think with magazines nowadays, quality over quantity very much so because everyone's got less time so you want to be reading something that entertains you um, teaches you something shows you quality rather than just flicking through a magazine and learning about cars in gen cars in general you know that so i i think time has got a lot to do with it as well I know what you mean about the, the price thing and the comparison with Road Rat and Triple Zero is interesting because you know in, in quality terms, you know, there are s- similarities, but in terms of price point, I don't if you swapped the two over, I'm not sure that Road Rat would, would work because Road Rat is has some general interest stuff, you know. Triple Zero is almost the ultimate nerd magazine. Mm. So you need the ultimate nerd to get them to pay 75 pounds to buy it yes exactly whereas yeah. road rat you know it does have some porsche content in it but it's a general um is, you know yeah. automotive culture magazine yeah. so to get someone to pay 75 pound for an automotive culture magazine no, i'm not sure even i'd do that to be honest no. so i think that's sort of one of the reasons why triple zero works at that price because it's you know because you've got to be nuts yeah to, to pay the money uh, and think it's worth it and yeah. i do think it's worth it so i must be nuts um <laughs> and you know yeah it's, it, it, com- it comes down really. it comes down to numbers ultimately and and that's yeah. as we say like, like like with any business case and that's why it's kind of yeah it's important that they get that right um if, like with, with kind of porsche mags um in the uk there used to be three prominent ones total 911 um, 911 and porsche world and gt porsche classic porsche kicked around as a bi-monthly magazine yeah, yeah. Uh, but they were the, the three main and and you know People used to say, you know, oh, you know, what do you what do you think of that story on 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 their cover this month? And I used to say it doesn't bother me in the slightest. And the reason is I don't I don't consider other Porsche, I never have done, don't consider other print titles to be a rival of Total 911 magazine. Uh, all magazines are a collective, our rival is the internet. And you know, there'll be people that will go into a shop and they'll buy Total 911 and 911 and Porsche World and GT Porsche back in the day and Evo, because it's 20 quid for, you know, as we mm. 80,000 words of just outrageous, you know, awesome world-class insight into different topics. Um, and, and that kind of just comes back to it that, you know, the, the internet 
has uh, made things more difficult for magazines. But by the same token, I really do feel strongly that the internet has enhanced the appeal and the magic of a magazine. Mm. Yeah. I think you're right. No, I think you're right. Yeah. Dead right. I think there was, you know, the Porsche magazine space is interesting, isn't it? I, I remember a time when 911 and Porsche World was on the shelves, you know, in the, in the nineties. And that was quite a glossy, you know, it's physically, it was physically quite a big magazine. The covers had often quite a lot of bold color on them with, um, you know, sort of layout of, of, of pictures. And it was quite expensive, you know, back in, you know, when maybe in a time when performance bikes magazine was one pound 20 and I'd be buying that every month, nine lemon and Porsche world, which wasn't always a monthly, I don't think, um, was maybe, I don't know, two ninety five or something like that. Uh, you know, so it's quite a bit more, um, but I'd buy it because it had, you know, things that you couldn't read about anywhere else. You know, even autocar wouldn't like roof cars mm. and, you know, and, and you know, all sorts of interesting things. So I'd buy it. Um, but sometimes I'd still have this, you know, I'd get on my high horse thinking, you know, that drive of that car isn't in the auto car style. You know, that hasn't been assessed in the way that they would do an auto car. And I'd be like, well, you know, so I'll just look at the pictures and things like that. <laughs> but there was a period when GT purely Porsche, when Stuart Gallagher was the editor and he had people writing in that magazine and I came back to it. You know, I started reading GT Porsche when it came out. Um, I found issue four the other day. I was having a flick through that, but I came back to it probably with the 997. And if you look at the uh, issues of that magazine at that point, uh, Chris Harris is writing for them. Andrew Frankel's writing for them. Colin Goodwin's writing for them. And Stuart's the editor. You know, that was a pretty spectacular period of magazines. Um, and maybe that's partly where my, you know, evangelical 997 stuff comes from, because those people were assessing those cars mm. and writing about them. Um, and I, I was I was all over that. That was a great period for that magazine. I feel sometimes a little bit sad that it's, you know, that it's sort of gone off now for, for, for whatever reason. But one of the things that I like about the Sibley era of T911 is because <laughs> people like uh, Kyle are writing in there and Adam Towler's writing in there. Mm. got some really high quality writers in there uh, who are assessing things and writing about them in a way that, you know, that really gets me going. Excellent. Well, look, it's been such an awesome chat to kind of really deep dive into magazines uh, with with people that are just as, as passionate about magazines as I am. We said we were going to talk about magazines on Armworks Radio for a long time. So it's nice. I, I, I feel like we've done it justice. I hope you guys think the same, really. Yeah. One, one thing just to sort of go into the YouTube thing, just to make a connection with that and magazines, which is something that, you know, you and I have talked about briefly, Lee. One of the things that I was found interesting about YouTube car people, YouTubers, when it first started, was that they, it was like an extension of the magazine long-term test. And that's always been one of the interesting things about reading a weekly or a monthly magazine is when, like when Autocar ran a Guards Red uh, Gen 2 997. That was really interesting. Talking about putting people in the back and using it as a proper car. Um, you know, which is what I ultimately ended up doing. So that was really interesting. And why YouTube was interesting was because it was like an extension of that, because initially it was people talking about cars that they owned and that they were living with. And it didn't matter about um, whether they were assessing them, um, you know, in an objective technical way or not, because it was about, I've had this F12 for three years and this is how much it cost me and it's been brilliant, but it's a pain in the ass here and it's fantastic there. And that was really interesting because I thought, well, you know, I'd really like an F12, but what, it would re what would it really be like? 
Um, and, you know, you don't get F-12s on a long-term test in a magazine unless Harry Metcalf bought one. So that's, that, was, that felt to me like an extension of the car magazine, and it was brilliant. But then those people started to make a little bit of money and thought, is this a career? How do I monetize it? And it's gone off in the way that it has done now, and I've pretty much lost interest in it, to be honest. Well, that, that's where YouTube works. And, and honestly, this could be a whole new podcast on its own and i think it's something we should cover you know but that that conceptually is where youtube could work really well um but from what i saw um the automotive sphere of youtube even kind of uh, in the embryonic stages of youtube and beyond was just you know people walking down the king's road filming people with wrapped bugattis revving the living daylights out of them who then built up a massive audience and who then ended up going on car launches and were sitting next to the likes of Andrew Frankel and whatnot on a plane to go and drive a new XYZ. And you just think, in what world is this right? You know, I guess yeah. it's like, it's like the, 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 um, the emperor's new clothes, isn't it? It's that, that saying that YouTube has gone through that. And I think it's starting to come out the other side of it now because we're that sort of dumbed downside of it is being seen for what it is. Um, and I think the nine works thing that we've got going on at the moment, you know, we've got both written material, uh, video material and audio and the podcast stuff. It's getting those three together and being quality versions of each of those. Uh, I think we're doing pretty well in actually coming up with a quality product that covers all of those and they all work together um podcast sort of adds detail and depth um the video does its thing and then you've got the 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 print sort of not print media but you know written media um and it all all marries up and and works together which gives you a, a full wholesome product as it were and there's some really high quality editorial going on on nine works you know it's really there's some really Interesting stuff. I, I, you know, I enjoy looking at that. You know, uh, online isn't my, I'm not predisposed to online editorial, not, not consciously, just habitually. I'm still not. Uh, but I go to Nine Works because I know that there's going to be some high quality editorial. Sometimes I, I link to it from Instagram because you'll say something. I say, oh, that's interesting. Like 991.1 GT3 engines. And, that, and, and then I go to it. Um, and that's, that that's that's been really good it's it, it's well, i appreciate the comments obviously and we're, we're we're all we'll try and very hard on it and we hope people at home agree that um that they benefit from it in some way but i think it just highlights the fact that um and, and it's a good way to surmise really that the the field for magazines and kind of automotive media has changed inextricably almost like the, the car itself it's it's had more change in the last three four years than it had in the previous 40 mm. Um, and, and, and lots of different kind of uh, lots of different brands and figures and authorities are trying to, yeah, just work out a way that works uh, commercially uh, as well as any, as anything else. You know, people have to earn a living at the end of the day. So lots of people are, yeah, trying trying their own avenue as to as to see how it works, which is great. You know, and we and we we hope it does work. There's lots of lots of brands even in the last year unfortunately including some really cool exciting startups that have gone out of business where it's not worked so i just think regardless of what brand you like or support whether it's print podcast video whatever it is the message is it's really important to support them and that, and that that doesn't mean go out and support nine works it means you know 
whoever you like, just make sure you support them because it really does matter and it really does count. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here. I, I, here, here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. You know, because it's really hard to do things really well. You know, it's not easy to produce high quality editorial or videos or, and I think, you know, the internet proves that, you know, and I've proven it to myself by, you know, by, you know, creating some editorial bits and bobs for nine works and trying to do it and realizing that, you know, when you have to do it, um, uh, you know, if things are, if ideas aren't just popping into your head, um, and you have to really think about it. It's really hard. Um, and then to do it really well becomes even harder. You know, it's not easy to do these things. So as you say, yeah, if you like something that someone's doing, you should support it. 100%. Uh, absolutely. 100%. It's, it's a great way to finish the pod. Um, before we do that, though, Andy, you've been busy with your 993 this week. I have, yeah. In, involving uh, someone to come and, come and see you with a lot of ice. <laughs> yeah, lots of ice. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have um, a little a little section talking to uh, Tom and also uh, Lawrence, who had his car done, and Scotty at Barn Sport, who um, very graciously uh, lent his lift to Lawrence so that he could have his car cleaned. Um, so, yeah, we're just going to have a quick sort of 10, 15-minute talk through it, um, sort of set. I guess to help set people's expectations of what it is and uh, yeah, what we thought, what we as customers thought of it. Gentlemen, how are we all? Good, thank you, mate. Good, good. I've got um, Tom from The Blastsmith. I've got Lawrence who had his 996 um, dry ice, dry iced at the weekend along with all mine right. and Scotty from Barnsport who very kindly lent uh, Lawrence his lift. Uh, I thought, yeah, good evening all. Um, I thought what we'd do is it was all fresh in our uh, minds to sort of have a little review of what we thought of the process. Um, also to sort of help Tom out a little bit, sort of setting people's expectations of what dry ice can do. Um, so Saturday morning, Tom arrived at my place bright and early, 8am. Big trip down from up north. Where are you from? Warwick, isn't it? That's right, mate. Yeah, Warwick. Yeah. So, yeah, Tom arrived at eight and uh, we set up and, and got cracking. Um, I had done some sort of preparation, um, as in sheeting off all of my garage, um, just to sort of prepare for, for any dust, um, which I must say, from my experience, wasn't too bad at all. It was just a, I just had a light little sort of dusting on some surfaces. Um, otherwise, it was all right. How was it at Barnsport? On, uh, yeah, some... it wasn't wasn't actually too bad at all. To be fair, just swept swept the floor up afterwards, and like you say, a very light bit of dusting, but nothing nothing horrendous, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, it was good. Good. So yeah, Lawrence had set up like a tent underneath the nine nine six on the two post lift, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I, to be honest, I didn't. I thought it was it wasn't the best tent really. Um, but actually, when Tom came, he said that it was fine and then he actually wanted some airflow through it so um so i think i was trying to make it perhaps too airtight and as you said tom <laughs> that's not very good for your health um, <laughs> <Not really. laughs> so uh, actually it kind of worked out okay so i was i was glad he didn't make too much mess in uh, yeah, it's quite it's gonna be quite <laughs> subjective and to be honest quite a lot of people uh, they do ask me you know what what sort of mess does it make i think it's important to understand first of all that the ice that comes out of the uh, machine will evaporate. Uh, it, it basically just sublimates straight back from frozen CO2 back to CO2 gas. 
Um, so all you're left with is the frozen particles that have fallen from the vehicle and any dust that's been mobilized that's already in the building. Yeah. Because of the volume of air you're dealing with, you know, if, if the building itself, you know, if it's a particularly dirty workshop, which yours isn't, Scott, by the way, yours is phenomenally clean, but <laughs> if it's a dirty workshop, then obviously you're going to get a lot more dust mobilized at that point. Um, if I do work in workshops whereby there's um, a grinding or welding environment nearby, quite yeah. often um, the customer will say, don't worry about it because the workshop's already dirty. And by nature of doing that, I don't notice there's any mess at all because there's already a small amount of mess. Um, if the place is spick and span, obviously then you are going to notice it. Um, with regarding sheeting the cars off, again, this is something that I've tried myself a few times, depending on the environment. Worked brilliantly there at the weekend, but it's important not to make a cocoon that's <clears throat> not particularly airtight. That's airtight, sorry, because I must say, I say airtight, but the volumes of air that you're dealing with and the amount of CO2 that you're dealing with, um, it's, it's not good to have it encased too tightly um and that what we had at the weekend um was perfect so so yeah it doesn't really all that it ever can do is is move the dirt that's on the bottom of the vehicle which i guess will bring us on to another bit later on but it can't create more mess if that makes sense it's just a, a, a mobilization of what's already there yeah. and 90 percent of it will fall to the ground um the final point on that I would say is that there has to be a clear trajectory for the air to force the contaminant off the car and across the room. And when you're dealing with a chassis or wheel arch, it's very difficult to get that because there's always something in the way for it to hit and end up on the floor. So that, that sort of covers the mess side of things. I think both of us would agree that it, it wasn't that messy at all. Um, yeah, definitely. Certainly to my experience of other sorts of blasting, whether that's you know, using the jet washer or sand blasting or anything like that, that's just gonna cause mess everywhere everywhere. Um so yeah, it's really quite a clean, clean um process. What I did find interesting was how sort of powerful it is yet delicate delicate. So what you're doing is you're taking away the dirt but not actually um doing anything to the surface the sort of finished surface of the car so whether that's a painted surface or a um a protection coat um you know you you you're adjusting the 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 pressure to to just take away the dirt and not not take away any more uh you've got any sort of comment on that on you know how it yeah, does so that what i typically always do is i would always start off You've got, you've got a few variables in the machine, one of which I tend to leave fairly static because working with anything automotive, you want the pallet size to be quite small. Yeah. Um, because you've got so many different surfaces, you've got the undersealed part of the body, you've got painted body that's not undersealed, you've got painted brackets, you've got potentially powder-coated brackets, you've got zinc-coated brackets etc etc and you've also got rubberized components etc so you've got a vast a major variety there of different materials um and i tend to 
use to make it as economical as possible. I tend to keep the ice volume low, but the air pressure high. Okay. Um, and that, that's not always the best setting. Obviously, if you've got heavy contamination, you've got to wind the ice in after. Yeah. But the machine can use 60 kilograms of ice an hour if you want it to. Um, and that's a lot. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I was trying air on the side of caution as well, because of course people's pride and joy is at the end of the day, we start off gently and see how we go. And yeah. up to now, really, I found the settings that we used at the weekend. I mean, ultimately I used the same setting on both vehicles. Um, but some things require a different proximity with the lance Some require a different amount of passes. I'd just rather do it more gently. Um, to, and, and it, it might take me an extra hour than it would if I did it quicker yeah. um, and risk causing any sorts of sort of um, marks or anything or, or, or on the surface. Um, you know, it, it's important to know that the, the dry ice is not abrasive, but ultimately you are accelerating dry ice particles at the surface. Um, I mean, my compressor runs nearly 10 bar of pressure, 200 CFM. Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's a lot. And ultimately, if you've got something particularly delicate on the surface there, the dry ice pellet, whilst it will, um, basically it just sort of hits the surface and it will like almost explodes back into a gas. Um, it's not, it's not abrasive in any way, but if it's something particularly soft, like an aluminium heat shield, for example, yeah. you can create an impression with the pellet on that shield. So it's important to start off in a very delicate way and work it up from there if you need to. Cool. Better to be uh, safe than sorry, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the insurance is bad enough to work on people's cars, let alone if you start damaging them. And, <laughs> and the thing is for me is that, you know, it's, um, it's a big deal. Like it, because I've got, obviously, I'm massively into the cars myself anyway. You know, I've always been around cars a long, long time. That's the reason I wanted to get into this, because I saw the niche for it, and I saw the finished product. And it's a product that I would really like on my own car. Um, you know, if you're not in the market for a full rotisserie restoration, but you've got a good, genuine car, yeah. And I think it works really, really well. And actually, I actually really like to see a survivor. I really like to see a well-used, good example. And I think this helps to highlight that when that said person's got such a such a car, you know. Yeah. So, I think it was it was quite interesting seeing the two different cars because going down two different avenues in some ways. Uh, so I've stripped all of my suspension off, um, and the cleaning that we did. Um, wasn't wasn't overly apparent in some ways because there was you know it's just the base of the car there the gearbox looks amazing where that's been cleaned um, but then when we did Lawrence's car um, it was quite interesting because you've got all of your you know everything was there all the suspension components there it really sort of popped it was quite interesting to see the difference between the two in how that how that came out does did that ring true with you Tom? Yeah, the thing the thing is with is, is you've got more bright work when it's assembled. Yeah, there's more things there 
to to clean absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. so you know there's a lot of things that which will typically attract dust and typically attract dirt um porsches as i said to you at the weekend are built so well yeah you know i mean you guys know the models we're not going to go down that path you had enough of me getting it wrong at the weekend but (laughs) look there will be some that are known for being better than others and that's just the nature of any mark However, my experience, it seems to be that this has taken off in a big way with the Porsche community. Um, The vast majority of my customers at the moment are from within the Porsche community. Um, That says something about them. I guess they really want to take care of what they've got, which is great. Um, But they're built beautifully and they clean up beautifully. Yeah. The parent surfaces, the original surfaces, the original coatings, the original seam sealers, everything that's on the car is of a quality that means that 25 years down the line, you can clean it back too. And it looks very nearly as good as it did the day it was new, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's worth highlighting, isn't it? That um, you couldn't do this, this on a, like, I don't know, a rusty old Metro that you've just pulled out of a field if you're to hit that with uh, ice blasting, you're not going to suddenly come out with an amazing underside of a car. You've got to start with something good to start with and just cleaning yeah. the dirt off. You're not going to clean all the rusty shit off. No, I think I think the thing as well is, for me, like I started researching this a couple of years back now, um, and dry ice cleaning in itself is nothing new, as I said at the weekend. It, it, it exists in industrial uh, capacities a lot within the UK foodstuffs, factories, smoke damage building cleans, flood cleans, all that sort of stuff. Because you don't have a secondary waste, it's not like you're going around flailing a pressure washer, introducing loads of water everywhere. So actually, you know, it's used a lot. Cadbury's used them on all their production lines. You know, anyone that does injection molding will use it because it's very quick and very efficient and very clean without any waste. But I started to look at it in an automotive capacity. And when you look on videos online, which are very, very common now, all you ever see is people in America doing it. And with all due respect, there are areas of America where they have particularly harsh weather. And there are areas of America where they have heavily salted roads, as we do here. But the videos that they show online, blasting away under seal or blasting away dust. For me, I had to look back at a business model and think, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to manage the expectation of the customer in the UK? Yeah. Because a lot of my inquiries are, I've got this car and it will be something, you know, with all due respect, it will be something nice, you know? Um, And they say, but it's got wax all on the bottom of it. And I say, can you show me some pictures? And that would be an underestimation. We're talking about like three levels of MOT thickness, <laughs> black shorts or something, you know? Yeah. And can the dry ice clean that off? Probably. But is it the most cost-effective method of doing a restoration on that vehicle? And that's where it beco- that's where it comes into question. So now we got some amazing results at the weekend. 
But it's very, very important that I look at it on a case-by-case basis. And for me, as an enthusiast, what I won't do is go to someone's house and say, yes, I can do it. It's this much money. And when it's finished, it looks exactly the same as it did before. Yeah. Because the dry ice has a niche, and that niche is smaller in our market than it is in dry states. But we do get a lot of dry state vehicles here, and we get a lot of import vehicles here. So I do get the benefits of doing those as well. But as the used car market fluctuates and goes, climbs and climbs and climbs, people are now pulling out of sheds and swamps and whatever else, cars which they now deem to be more valuable than they did before. And therefore they now believe they want to care for them in a different manner to which they've been cared for before. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, some of the damage is already done to a point where you really are at a stage where it's wire wheels, angle grinders, and or more extreme, you know, acid dipping or whatever. Yeah. Um, so really my most difficult task is to manage people's expectations. So I have to look at everything on a case-by-case basis. And going back to what we said, I haven't seen a Porsche yet because they've always lived in a world where people love them, I believe, for the most part. And I haven't seen a Porsche yet that I haven't been able to bring back very, very nicely indeed. So, yeah, it's hard to say for everyone, but, you know. Got here, yeah. What did you think, Lawrence? Were you happy? Yeah, I was really pleased. Um, I think it... um, yeah, it, it, like you say, so, there are certain parts of the car that actually they just look new. Um, Didn't they? It was that front you, suspension bit for me on your Yeah, horse. Yeah, and the kind of the painted stuff that was um, – it, it is under under the under trays in some parts, but yeah. that came up literally just looked like a new painted surface. Yeah. Um, and also, like, kind of the interesting thing with it was that, you know, okay, you could kind of – some of it you could clean with a brush and chemicals and all that stuff – but actually there were areas that the blasting got that would have been almost impossible to get into um, yeah, like behind mechanical clean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I was really impressed with that actually. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, the, the interesting thing is it obviously doesn't, like you said, it doesn't clean off rust and corrosion as such, um, but it's perhaps it's kind of, there's a couple of spots on mine just on some brackets, which, we're going to take off and, and re-powder coat, but it's kind of just like highlighted those areas. So you kind of know what's what underneath it now. Yeah. 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 Cause when you look under most cars, it's just a gray mass of stuff, isn't it? And you know, yeah. so you're not don't sure know. what's dirt and what's, what's actual corrosion. Exactly. So yeah, it's good to highlight that. Definitely. Um, yeah. I thought it's quite interesting. The two different cars. So nine, nine, my nine, nine, three and your nine, nine, six in the difference in the way that it had been finished on the bottom. So okay. all the early cars seem to have like a, 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 I'd say it's a beige sort of epoxy coat. Um, mm-hmm. And then they don't really get sprayed on the bottom with body color. And there's just a little bit of overspray of anything in certain areas, but really yep. it's still the beige. But on the 996, that was all body color, the whole lot, all the way underneath. Yeah which yeah, um, yeah. yeah look quite different. I don't know if you noticed yes. that, Tom. Yeah, I mentioned to you, didn't I, when I started, I said, I'm not sure what to expect underneath your car with it being red. Yeah. Because the Porsches that I've done up to now, 
Um, I've done a several blue ones and a black one, but the black one had been restored. Um, but even so, even on the black car, the floor pans were still that creamy beige coloured. Yeah. 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 But I mean, whatever that is, holds up really, really well. Yeah, it's good shit. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It is really, really good. I mean, yeah. it doesn't. It's quite surprising they didn't bother to paint over it, but they maybe know they didn't need to. You know, didn't need to. Yeah. yeah. No, it, yeah. it looks real good. It's, yeah. It holds up really, really well. Excellent. Um, I think the last point that we need to come on to is um, lots of people sort of say, "Oh, you're taking the Cosmoline off," um, but you need to. You know, we're cleaning off the bottom of the car. You need to then re, re-protect it once you've done the dry ice cleaning. So you've done yours already, haven't you, Lawrence? You've um, you've put a new protective coating on that. Yeah, we literally did it as soon as Tom had packed up and was on the road again. We um, we sprayed it with uh, Lanagard, yeah. um, which is I've not used it before. I've read good things about it, um, so we'll see how good it is um but it was really easy to put on so um uh but the car slightly smells of sheep now which is a bit weird but... <laughs> <laughs> when when you put it all on the um it made everything just like shine it was almost like you were just re-lacquering the underside it looks incredible didn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's like silicon spraying everything i <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to be using um, some built Hamber product um, that I've used already in the wheel arches. Um, is it called Dynex? I think it's called, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, Dynex uh, UC is the clear one. Yeah. Um, and that's the one I t- typically suggest people use if they've got to move the car anywhere um, at, at any point quickly. Yeah. Um, just because the Lanagard products are a little bit wetter and they take a little bit longer to dry, that's all. Um, but... I've also read great stuff about Lanigan. I know people that have used it a lot. Um, my, I myself, um, I'm into my Japanese cars and they're famed for their uh, inability to resist corrosion. So <laughs> yeah. people tend to use a lot of um, the clear products now seem to be popular. And I think that's the thing for me as well, is when people say, oh, what are you going to put on the bottom of it? For the most part, most people choose to do that themselves because it's their car and they've researched which coating they want to use and like yourself Andy you've already used a, a particular product on the wheel arches and such so you're going to continue with that um yeah. I do have the ability to put on um wh- whatever the uh, customer wants me to if that was the case um but most people just want to coat it with whatever they've got and actually they prefer to get under there once it's all clean and do it themselves yeah i suppose yeah. it just makes it a little bit more cost effective for them at the end of the day yeah absolutely yeah because the so if i mean we should talk about cost you know it's it's not a cheap thing to do um there's no doubt about it it's you know it's it's a fair old chunk of money to have the to, to have the car done i mean what's your the standard charge for a, an under chassis type service just to um, give people an idea. Yeah, so depending on, again, it's all a bit of a, bit of a case-by-case basis, yeah. really, because if somebody sends me a picture, you know, and it, and it looks like it's really dirty, yeah, then it might be that it takes me twice as long and I need to use twice as much ice. And remember, in, the, in this, really, there is only three things that you're paying for. My time and equipment, the ice, and the diesel. Yeah. 
um, and ice and diesel. We ice doubled in price before Christmas, which doesn't help my cause. The diesel's going through the roof at the rate of knots. But I think it's very worth it's well worth me saying at this point that you know, like we did at the weekend there, we organised two jobs really close together, and I was able to do you both um, a significant discount on my usual cost. Um, a chassis clean on its own at this moment in time. Um, eight between eight, eight, somewhere around eight hundred, eight fifty. Yeah. Um, depending on 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 the vehicle itself, it's also worth mentioning that that under normal circumstances would include the full under underbody of the vehicle and all four wheel arches. But like I said, with with the two vehicles we did at the weekend, we were able to not fair chunk off that. Yeah. Um, and it's it's, it's the travel more than anything. <laughs> it's the travel more than anything because you know obviously the fuel costs me an arm and a leg. So if I could get a couple of guys together whatever you know a couple of your um friends or whatever together and do them in one place yeah then it makes a big difference to me absolutely um I, but I, i'm I hoping think, for it not to go up much more than that if i'm honest with you yeah um simply because i know what there's other people out there i know what they charge um and for me as an enthusiast i want to keep it capped at a level where i believe we go back to what we said earlier about it having its niche, having its uses. It's having it, it's where it sort of fits in that restoration, stroke cleaning, stroke, you know, um, detailing sort of field. You know, because I get asked a lot, oh, but what's the difference between doing that and steam cleaning it? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, it's absolutely night and day. That's yeah. what you know. I can't. And you're able to do it inside a workshop and then underseal it 10 Straight minutes away. after I've left. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. 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 That's, that's the huge thing about it is so, um, it, it's a big chunk of money for what you're doing, but it's, it's so economic in other ways because you've not got to strip the car down. Like in Lawrence's case, you know, you didn't have to strip any of those parts off to clean them no, which exactly. you would have done in a traditional way um or as you say that you know you'd be under there with a pressure washer getting absolutely doused and dousing everything in <laughs> dousing scotty's poor workshop in water everywhere and mud and all sorts so yeah it's it's uh it's an interesting new way of cleaning stuff for sure well in that in the in the motor industry that's a yeah and i guess also the fact that you can coat it straight away if you were doing it with water you'd have to let it dry for a few days and you, yeah. you know because otherwise you might end up trapping water in little crevices where you've perhaps sprayed it and and all of that Absolutely. so you don't really have to worry about that yeah yeah i think the other thing as well that's worthwhile mentioning is that i can turn up to a job and you know i've cleaned 1960s rolls royce engine bags with countless carburettors and you know, there's a, an amount of stuff in there that you couldn't even believe. Yeah. And at no point is that ice going to damage anything. Yeah. I'm not introducing moisture. I'm not introducing chemicals. I'm not introducing dust. I'm not introducing anything that's going to co- cause an electronic connector to either arc or either corrode. Yeah. So if you've got something like that, you've also got the knowledge that, yes, it can be cleaned. It can be cleaned a lot quicker than you could do it yourself without any risk of damaging anything. 
you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable aiming a pressure washer, even if it's the bottom of an engine bay, especially in a Porsche where you've got that compact engine lid. You know, introducing all that high pressure water or steam into there. I don't know. It's each to their own, but I mean, I wouldn't do it because you'd be chasing running problems and electrical problems forever and a day. Yeah. Um, so that's another reason that I think it's it, it's good. But I think the finish of it's quite the finish on it's quite unique, and that's the main thing that I want to get across. It's not going to be for everybody, but for the people that it is for, I think it works really, really well. Uh, it, it just brings back newness, doesn't it? I think that's the. It, it just looks brand new without looking over overdone. I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think my one ended up, as I say, certain parts of it looked incredibly new and, you know, like literally factory fresh. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't, like you say, overdone to the point where you think, oh, I never want to drive that car in the rain. I never want to take it out again. It's still, for me, kind of usable, but it's just nice and clean and tidy, really. Yeah. I've, I've been asked, actually, quite a few times by people, is, has it made your car too good to use? You know, you, you get to that point when you when you restore something, you like, oh, I don't want to take it out because it's, it's never going to be the same. Um, and I was kind of struggling with that for for a little bit um but then i decided that what i've actually what what i'm doing at the moment is i'm i've taken 27 years of dirt off of the car which makes it easier to clean and sort of look after in the future but allows me to put 27 years more dirt on it so um i've 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 sort of become at peace with that as it were so that it's not it's not going to become a garage queen yeah, the beauty of it as well is that a lot of people, you know, especially through time constraints or, or lift access or whatever, they might not have had a good look under the car. They might not, they might have a rough idea of what the condition is like, but at least, you know, if we look at your two cars, for example, now you can honestly take a look at them too and go, I'm 100% happy with what I've seen. Yeah, I can recoat it and I'm good to go again. And yeah. actually, that gives you a, a further confidence to drive in the rain rather than not use it anymore and think, oh, no, I've not looked under there. That coating I put on is five years old. I've driven it in the snow. I've driven it here. You now know that that's all good to go again. Yeah. So, you know, we've where possible, every single little nook and cranny has been cleaned now. And you've looked at it and gone, I'm really happy with that. It looks great. Yeah. So now it's coated again. I'm good to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Definitely. Like it. Any uh, more comments from anybody, Scotty? Are you, when when you buying one? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can afford it anytime soon. But yeah, yeah, I was well impressed with it. You know, like you say, we've all, we've all seen the those videos, and it is like a real. It's like quite a satisfying watch, really, to see the difference. Uh, I was quite surprised also at how how quick it was. You know, you managed to do the whole underside of sort of Lawrence's car and wheel arches and that. And I think it's one of those processes you could easily spend three days doing one car. Oh, yeah. But you could get well reality, carried away. But the, yeah, exactly. It. But the yeah. reality is, you know, half a day to do the under the side of the car is probably all that's needed, really, to get it to a level where, you know, like you say, just needs recoating and then you're good to go. So, yeah, and I was, I was really, really interested in it. And it really impressed, actually. I thought, you know, once Lawrence's car was re. Um, resealed with the wax and that it just looked amazing absolutely amazing so uh yeah well impressed good good 
Lawrence, you're all happy and yeah, really happy with it. Um, again, like you say, just I, I think it it's kind of you've you've just knocked all those years off it, all that kind of grime and all the the stuff that was on there, and it's like you've kind of it's not like a new car, but it's like you say, good to go again, and you know you you know that it's all tickety boo under there, and yeah, good to go. Good. Yeah, I've been very impressed. Thank you very much for for coming down, Tom. Really appreciate it. That's all right. Thank you very much for the custom and uh, hospitality. No worries. Most welcome. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll wrap it up. Uh, We'll get back to the other guys. Thank you very much for joining us. Fantastic. Cheers, guys. Cheers, then. Amazing, gents. That's another episode of Nine Works Radio in the bag. Very good. I'm going to go back into the loft now and look at some more magazines. <laughs> <laughs> just, um, just one thing. Which I'd ones? Like, yeah, not those ones. <laughs> just one thing I'd like to say before we wrap up the pod. It's, uh, of course, the voting for the Nine Works Awards is now over. Uh, however, there are still limited tickets remaining. So, if you would like to join us, so all of us four from the podcast will be there on the evening, as well as Tony Hatter, designer of the 993 and Carrera GT, no less, as well as a hosts of people from around the industry they're all going to be there at charade accident repair on thursday the 7th of april if you'd like to get your ticket just go to eventbrite search nine works awards and you can be there that should be about it i think so one more thing (laughs) what's it called drive drive half give half so yes that's a very good point so as we mentioned at the top of the podcast head over to just giving you go justgiving.com slash fundraising slash nine works and you can donate towards our drive to war uh, drive half give half appeal to help those out in ukraine